Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm an ecologist and a professor of biology and a Christian. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science, studying birds, and in following Jesus. I started Disciple Science to produce short videos and other resources to show how integrating science with Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. I'm glad you're here to join me and occasional guests to explore the intersection of science and Christian faith. Now, let's get on with the podcast. This week, we're sharing the conclusion of a three-part speaking engagement that I gave on the Christian church and scientific thought. After the previous two weeks of explaining the conflict, this week I propose solutions for how to get ourselves out of this mess. You can also watch this talk on our partner YouTube channel called Dale Gentry on Science and Faith. Everything on that channel, like what we put on the Disciple Science YouTube channel and our website, is completely free thanks to your support. Disciple Science is a crowdfunded nonprofit based in St. Paul, Minnesota. None of our work would be possible without your generous support. You can give and find all of our videos and archive podcasts at disciplescience.com. All right, good morning. It is a pleasure to be back here for week three of our exciting journey through the history of Christian church and scientific thought. For those of you that weren't here in the past few weeks, my name is Dale Gentry. I am a professor of biology at the University of Northwestern in St. Paul, and I am also the executive director of Disciple Science, which is a little media ministry that I started within the past uh, year to talk about the integration of science and faith. Uh, We've spent the last couple weeks discussing how we got to where we are today. And where we are today is in a society in which people think that science and Christian faith are in conflict, that there is just tension inherent built into this relationship. And so we spent the past couple weeks talking about where we, how we got to that conclusion, where that idea comes from. And today, I think I hope to be a little bit more uplifting. We're gonna talk about solutions. We're gonna talk about pathways out of this idea of conflict into a future where there's more harmony. I don't know if that's the right word, but I think harmony, this idea that they can coexist together and actually be better uh, uh, together. And again, this is a byproduct of some of the work that I've been doing over the past three or four years. I've been teaching on this subject for about 10 years. But for the past two or three, I've decided to take some of the work that I've done in the classroom and translate it into videos and a podcast and some study materials that can be more widely disseminated. And for those of you um, that might be interested, if you weren't here for week one or week two, I have posted a video um, and, and audio of the, of the, the previous two weeks' talks on... Um, Uh, sort of a a partner YouTube channel. So we have a Disciple Science YouTube channel, and then we have another one called Dale Gentry on Science and Faith, where I'm posting more just like public speaking stuff. So if you want to watch the first two weeks, you can find those there, okay? So before we get started, let me um, uh, open us with a word of prayer, and then we will get rolling here. Lord God, we come before you this morning uh, just to ask, Lord, for guidance and wisdom. Help us to seek appropriate pathways for how to better fit together our knowledge of you that we encounter in scripture and through the spirit with our understanding of you as the creator and sustainer of all things and 
and the ability of science to make sense out of those things. Lord, help us to see how to fit those together so that our faith can be enriched and strengthened uh, through the, the, the presence of both of those pathways of understanding. Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would uh, guide and direct our congregation and our community and our nation, our world, as we continue to wrestle with the coronavirus outbreak and the, the, the uptick we've seen in that, Lord. Just deliver us pathways of wisdom. Help us to know how to best respond to that. We also uh, lift up before you, Lord, uh, our country this week as we enter into election season and some of the tension that is associated with that, Lord, help us to seek peace, to, um, to uh, flavor our conversations with humility and love and grace. And Lord, I would just pray for our country that we would emerge out of this election with a clear sense of how to bring your goodness about, how to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all these things, Lord, in your son's holy name. Amen. All right. So uh, just a quick uh, recap of what we've gone through in the past few weeks. We started about 500 years ago when modern science emerged, the time that we call the scientific revolution. And we, from that um, learning, we talked about how our understanding of engagement with God's creation transitioned from one of seeking to understand God to one where we are trying to prove God, right? Now this is, I don't want to portray this as right or wrong, but just a, a change in approach, right? A change in approach. So uh, prior to science, we thought, I want to engage with who God is through, uh, through what God's created. And then as we, saw, as we saw the ability of science to provide understanding, people thought maybe we can use science to prove that God exists. And so we had a transition in our, our uh, core engagement with God's creation. And so that was a pretty big transition. Secondarily, we, uh, we engaged in that process of trying to prove God mostly by saying, that these, there are uh, little corners of the scientific world where science is just not getting the job done, right? It can't explain where the universe, uh, how the universe came about. It can't explain the origin of life. It can't explain the beauty and complexity and diversity. And so we rooted our understanding of God and our attempts to try and prove God's existence in what science could not explain, right? And I think that what we found last week as we discussed uh, Darwin and, and evolution, nat natural selection, that in some ways that came back to bite us a little bit, that by rooting our conviction that God exists in the idea of a fixed universe, that it only could be explained through God's existence, Darwin said, wait a minute, right? He, he wasn't actually fighting against religion. He just said, the universe isn't fixed in place. It's changing. It's dynamic. And the, the framework that we use for understanding God was kind of blown apart and it caused tension. And that helped us understand uh, some of where we are today, that we have too frequently said either we have an explanation from religion that says God did it, whatever it may be, you know, the, uh, the orbits of the, of the planets or the origin of life or the origin of the universe or anything, right? God did it or science can explain it with some sort of scientific mechanism that we presented ourselves with an either or choice between God did it or science can explain it. And we didn't think about how those things might overlap. So what we're gonna talk about today again is how to get out of this conflict paradigm. I'm gonna talk about three or four different points of how 
I think we can move forward addressing some of the maybe mistakes or misconceptions that we made in history and create a, a healthier path forward. And this week, I want to start with a video that we made to, to, to do this instead of ending with a video. And again, this is a video that we just released um, a couple weeks ago about how to ease the tension between science and faith. Among the greatest sources of tension between science and faith is the idea that scientific explanations leave no room for God. This is prominently displayed when Christian scientists search for divine action in nature. They present God at the boundaries of our understandings. What caused the universe? How could life come from non-life? Why does the cosmos work like it does? And how could life get so complex without a designer? While these may be logical and fruitful places to look for supernatural activity, this specific emphasis exposes our discomfort with God's role in the better understood aspects of nature. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, renowned German theologian, warned us against this approach, writing, how wrong is it to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge? If in fact the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed further and further back, then God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. If we look for God only in the mysterious, then we're guaranteed not to hold sacred what is familiar. Instead, Psalm 104 is a good starting point to see God as creator and sustainer. Scripture portrays God as intimately involved in the everyday experience of the world. This invites us to reframe science as a study of how God acts, rather than what's happening in God's absence. Encouraging this vision of God and science should inspire Christians to study the natural world, not only to satisfy our curiosity and to solve our problems, but to encounter God through the majesty of creation. We're aware that nature doesn't always reveal beauty and harmony. There's also pain and suffering. We won't ignore that, but we'll address that issue in a future video. But what about the Bible? Many Christians believe that scientific discoveries contradict what it contains. The Bible scholars generally agree that the scriptures are best understood in terms of the cultural context in which they were written. Billy Graham saw it this way. He said, I don't think there's any conflict at all between science today and the scriptures. I think that we have misinterpreted the scriptures many times, and we've tried to make the scriptures say things they weren't meant to say. I think that we've made a mistake by thinking the Bible is a scientific book. The answers won't always be simple, but we believe that the fullest truth is revealed through studying both scripture and science. Science can explain how the world works, and theology can chime in on why it's here, where it's going, and for what purpose it exists. For example, the medical revolution has helped us explain the transmission of disease and how our immune systems work, reducing unnecessary suffering and premature death. The idea that people are loved by and made in the image of God gives purpose and urgency to the goals of medical science. And theology can produce some insights on how suffering with illness produces intimacy with God and equips us to empathize with others. Additionally, people have been fascinated by the heavens throughout recorded history. Through science, we've discovered that the Earth is one planet of trillions, and the universe is massive and complex beyond imagination. 
It's older than we expected, and it had a beginning and continues to expand. This helps us grasp that we do not need to be unique to fully experience God's grace and love. And pondering the vast size and age of the universe inspires awe at the majesty and patience of God. Somewhere along the way, we got hung up on the wrong questions. Some wonder, how can I use science to confirm what I believe to be the true message of the Bible, while others try and fit the Bible into the conclusions of science? We've approached these topics with an exclusive either-or mindset, rather than holding the possibility that science and theology can work together to give a more complete picture of reality. With this view, we might ask, what do scripture and nature reveal about who God is, who I am, how I should relate to God, and how I should relate to God's creation and other people? These questions will unearth the whole story of humanity and nature, beautiful and wondrous and broken and in need of a savior. All right, I want to spend a little time then unpacking some of these ideas a little bit, but elaborating on, on, on just that. And as I alluded to before we watched that video, so much I believe of the conflict has been, come from being presented with two options. Either religion can explain it or science can explain it. And that is, I think, the core example of a false dichotomy. That it doesn't, it, we're feel forced into, into choice when we, it's not an authentic choice. We don't have to choose between scientific explanations and explanations from scripture or from Christian theology. And I have sort of intentionally embedded through our last two weeks examples of how many times we have felt forced into choices. Right? We felt choices, uh, choices when it came to the Protestant Reformation. Do we side with the Protestants or with the Catholics? And there were choices when it came to the emergence of science. Do we trust scientific explanations or religious explanations? And we felt choice when it came to creation or evolution. And we felt choice when it came to the Enlightenment. Do we stick with our faith or do we abandon that and become secular atheists? Right? If you're given two choices, then you're kind of put in a corner of having to choose one and not the other. When I think that in the case of Christian faith versus scientific understandings, it's a false dichotomy. It's a byproduct of dualistic thinking, which is problematic for so many different reasons. But what we'll find is that many of the, the dualisms that are presented to us, that you have to choose what we learn in scripture or science, that we have to live out our faith uh, through works or through thought, that we have to search for God with reason, or with imagination, these are things that we don't have to choose from. They are presented to us as dualistic choices, but they aren't authentically dualistic. That they are things that can be integrated. And that's especially true when it comes to how God acts. Right? And I think where we got into trouble over the past 500 years is taking the explanations that God is responsible for again, the origin of life or the orbits of the planets or any number of explanations for which we've used God and we haven't really unpacked what that means when we say God did it. What do we mean when we say God is responsible for the structure and organization of life? So um, over time, as I mentioned, I think in the first week, 
we saw the emergence of a deistic view of God because of this dualism. We saw that science was starting to explain things and our understanding of God was rooted in the things that science couldn't explain. So deism arose. People are like, okay, we need God to start the universe and we need God to create life. But after that, we don't really need God anymore. So we're just gonna be deists. We're like, okay, there's a God, but he's not loving and he's not involved in my life. And Jesus is you know, just some dude who was a good preacher. That's a, that's a, a, a false idea, right? We didn't talk as much about another position that emerged, which is pantheism, which sees God in everything, that God is everything, right? That the rocks are a manifestation of God and the plants and the animals are a manifestation of God. That's not Christian doctrine either, right? If we're forced to choose between those, it's a, it's a disastrous mess. What we need to rediscover is the Christian doctrine of providence, right? This is maybe not, this is not something that I remember from my youth, uh, being raised in, in, in Christian church and youth group and whatnot, but divine providence or, or general providence is this conviction that God, through his divine sovereignty, is present in and upholding the universe. This is the idea that God is the creator of the universe. We're comfortable with that idea, right? That's deism is rooted in, like God needed to be there to get it started but God is also the sustainer of the universe. And that's a view that pantheists sort of get wrong. They see God is a rock, whereas I think God's providence says that God upholds and puts together all of the universe. So that what we explain with science is not contradictory to saying that God did it. What we are presenting is that God works through the mechanisms that he put in place. Right, that providence is saying what science can explain is a, is a more explicit definition of how God acts. And this is what I've been trying to uh, convey sort of subtly, and now we want to talk about it explicitly. And these ideas are, are found throughout scripture once you sort of know where to look. Psalm 104 is the best place to start. Psalm 104 is a beautiful, perfect masterpiece of biblical poetry that invites us to see God not in the mysterious, but in the mundane, in what happens before our eyes every day. It says God's responsible for the rising and setting of the sun and the flowing of water, and the growing of grass and the feeding of the animals, right? That, those are not the mysterious aspects of creation. Those are the things that we see every day. So Psalm 104 says God is creator and sustainer. We see these ideas actually throughout scripture, not just in those Psalms. Uh, here's a, a, a famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. It says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. People could see how birds fed themselves, right? They're eating seeds, and they're eating insects, and they're pulling worms out of the ground. What, the, what Jesus wants us to see is that God is active and present in these things that we can experience every day. So when we present either God did it or science can explain it, that, that is a false dichotomy, right? Uh, Christian doctrine says God is present in the everyday, ordinary, mundane explanations of the world. So when we come up with photosynthesis and we can explain how the solar radiation, you know, converts the energy and it builds sugars and the sugars are eaten by animals and the whole system that science can explain, we don't need to see that as contradictory 
to God's action, we need to see that as how God is upholding the universe. And so I've shown this slide a couple times. Again, and this is, this is a visual representation of God's providence, that we need to see God in the scientific mechanisms instead of either God did it or science can explain it. And when we do this, if we can wrap our minds around this idea, then science starts to reveal how God put things together instead of distracting us from our holding on tight to the mysteries of the universe. Now, don't hear me saying that God is not mysterious, right? There are many ways in which God acts that are utterly mysterious, and God is much bigger than what we can conceive of. So I'm not saying that God is simple and can be simply understood with science. What I am advocating for is that we let go of the idea that God is only mysterious and that what science can explain is an alternative to God's action. And this is where Dietrich Bonhoeffer was going. And this is not the full quote that we showed in the video, right? But he says that if the boundaries of our, of our understanding are being pushed further and further back, then God is being pushed back with them. We are, that's a rigged to fail, right? If we root our understanding of God in the mysterious, then God becomes less and less present as science can explain more and more. That's deeply troubling and problematic to me. We need to find God in what we know, not only in what we don't know. So I think that is the first area in which we have a lot of opportunity to improve because we talk too often about how science can either explain things or God is responsible, but not both. Okay, if we take that approach, if we start to see God's activity in what science can explain, I think that is a very fantastic first step to rediscovering the original intent of natural theology. Okay, if you recall, natural theology 500 years ago was this idea that we will be transformed by encountering God through contemplating the stars and the birds, and especially the birds, because I like the birds, right? Contemplating all that, that God has created, that those are going to put us in touch with the creator and sustainer of the universe. And we transition from that to the view through the Re Reformation and the emergence of science and the Enlightenment to a view that, hey, maybe we can use science to prove God. So I don't want to create my own false dichotomy here. I don't think it's wrong to say, uh, can we use reason to provide evidence for God? And I think there's fantastic evidences from God, from science, from philosophy. But what I also want to do is rediscover that original version of natural theology. Because if we see that God is active in creation and that science is an explanation of how God acts, then a deeper knowledge of science, of God's creation, is going to put us in touch with God. And I would argue that Christian theology is deeply rooted in natural theology, in this version of natural theology, that if you want to know God, you have to examine the natural world, and I want to try and defend that to you. And the first is one that might not be totally obvious to you. If you want to know God, where do we look, right? Scripture tells us, so if you want to know the fullest example of who God is, where would you look? Jesus Christ, who is a walking, talking, breathing man of flesh and bone, right? The fullest example of who God is 
was a physical entity of Jesus Christ, right? So the idea that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that for in Christ the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, in Colossians 2.9, in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and, be, and beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Is not that natural theology at its deepest core, that if we want to know God, we should look at this man who walked the earth 200 years ago, or sorry, 2,000 years ago. I'm gonna get my dates right. Okay, so Jesus is the fullest image of God. That is a, a conviction of, nat of natural theology, but it goes beyond that. And if we start to explore the entire biblical canon, what we will find is that the authors of scripture used metaphors rooted in an understanding of nature throughout. They are pervasive. Just on every page of scripture, you'll find an example of where God is depicted as light, as a rock, where the spirit is water, right? So let's look at a few of those. So knowledge of God is found in creation. And John, I think uh, John was especially compelled by these words from Jesus. Jesus says, uh, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, right? So if you wanna understand your relation to Jesus and the spirit, a good place to start is to think about grapevines and branches and fruit production. And that if we want to remain in God, we need to be connected to God. And that when those connections are severed, we lose the ability to bear fruit. That is a, just a beautiful metaphor that invites us to contemplate botany, from my perspective as a, a plant lover, right? Uh, here's another one. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give them will be, uh, well up in him, sorry, will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here is the vision of water and life, that they are inexplicably uh, uh, intertwined, that in our understanding of modern biology, there is no life without water, that you, they just can't coexist. And Jesus says, you know, water is just part of what we need in life. And if you accept my gift of the Spirit, if you accept my gift of grace, that's gonna be like never being thirsty again. Right, what a compelling metaphor, especially in a dry, dry land like the Middle East. They knew what thirst was all about, I imagine. What a beautiful metaphor of what it means to be in Christ. Let's do one more. Uh, Matthew 6, 26, again, another famous one from the Sermon on the Mount. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They never toil or spin. He goes on to say, but none of them were clothed uh, like, like Solomon. Right? So Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, look at the lilies of the field. He invites us to examine what he's created to use our imaginations to encounter our uh, God, to encounter God's love and grace, to invite us to contemplate God's creation, to be drawn into relationship with God. So I think we need to rediscover natural theology and this is not actually something that's been absent. It's just been, I think the volume has been turned down on it over the past 500 years. But at the same time that William Paley 
200 years ago was writing his book on natural theology and saying we can find God in you know, the, the absence of explanation for the you know, beauty and diversity of life, Jonathan Edwards, the American uh, philosopher and theologian, wrote these words, right? This is, this is more what I think of as the origins of natural theology. For as God is infinitely the greatest being, so he is allowed to be infinitely the most beautiful and excellent. And all the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffuse beams of that being who hath an infinite fullness of brightness and glory, right? He's not trying to prove God. He is relating to God through beauty and complexity and diversity and all that we discover when we contemplate the natural world. So again, I don't want to create a new false dichotomy. I don't think it's wrong to seek understanding of the existence of God through science and use science and theology or science and philosophy to, you know, try and come up with explanations that make rational sense, but we need to rediscover this old view of encountering God through metaphors found in scripture or things that perhaps just come into our understanding. Okay, so the, through the rediscovery of natural theology, I think Christians will be drawn in to an examination of God's creation. We'll see science as a pathway, as a spiritual discipline to coming into closer uh, um, relationship with the creator of all that goodness. Okay, now we can't really get out of this whole debate about science and faith without talking about some of its rootedness in how to interpret scripture. And I think for certain of us that were raised in evangelical traditions, we find the scripture is the authority in all things, right? As we sort of talked about during the Protestant Reformation, that we put very high confidence that scripture will be a revelation of truth. And so when there are occasionally, and there are not, not very many, but there are a few passages in scripture that some people say that passage just doesn't square with science's understanding of the world, how do we make peace between those things? Okay, I wanna try and um, elaborate on that a little bit. So I think that we need to talk about different philosophies for how scripture works and how it can be interpreted. And there are two, um, there are perhaps more than this, but most views can be put into kind of two camps, what we call concordism or accommodation. Accommodationism, if you want an ism on the end of it, okay? So a concordist view says that scripture should align perfectly and precisely with modern understandings of, um, of science and of history. And it's kind of arguing that anybody at any point in history should be able to uh, find uh, universal truths, not only about theology, but also about you know, the physical structure of the universe. Uh, and basically scientific questions, that they are true, as true in scripture as they are anywhere else. An alternative view to that is we call accommodation, which argues that God in inspiring scripture allowed the authors of scripture to present things in ways that would be meaningful to the audience to whom they were writing, right? So if Moses was writing, uh, you know, the Pentateuch back in the, um, in the, the, as they're wandering in the wilderness, as, as the sort of the dominant view holds, that he's gonna write things in ways that that audience can understand. 
and that in order for us to understand it fully, we need to kind of enter into that historical context, okay? So accommodation versus concordism, and there's a big still sort of existing tension between these two different views in modern, especially in this whole realm of debate between um, uh, science and Christianity. And so um, I think we can uh, get a, a vision of this when we revisit uh, a story that we alluded to a little bit in week one. We made a video about this, but we're not gonna take the time to watch it, which is uh, how the uh, influence of astronomy and the transition from a geocentric framework with the earth at the center of the universe to a, a heliocentric solar system with the sun at the center of our solar system and a bigger universe uh, influenced the way we read scripture, okay? And a lot of that debate was around the, the, this fairly well-known verse in Joshua chapter 10. I don't know if you all can read that very well. It's a little bit small. Let me read it to you. In Joshua 10, 12, it says, On the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon and the valley of Ahalon, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Okay, this was a tricky passage of scripture for a lot of people because it's in the context of a historical narrative. So it's telling the story of the battle and, and um, Joshua saying, man, we're, you know, we're really starting to turn the tide. I think we're gonna win this battle, but we just need a little bit more daylight. And so he goes out on quite the limb, right? And asks God, can you just stop the sun in the sky so that we have a little bit more time so we can finish out this battle? And scripture tells us that God answered that prayer. Miraculous, right? That passage became contentious when the proposal of a heliocentric framework suggests that the sun is always standing still and that we are revolving around it and that our days are a manifestation of the earth spinning on its axis, not the sun moving over our heads. And when word got around that Copernicus was going to publish a book arguing for that view, here is what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said, this is what that fellow, that fellow was Copernicus, this is what that fellow does who wishes to turn the whole of astronomy upside down. Even in these things that are thrown into disorder, I believe the holy scriptures. For Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. Right? So Luther and many other people, especially back then, but less true today, believe that if the Bible contains passages that allude to geocentrism, that means the Bible is teaching geocentrism. Right? So if the Bible is alluding to something, then that means that's what the Bible is teaching. And that's why we had a fairly long drawn out conflict between Copernicus and Galileo and early astronomers and the Catholic Church because they were arguing it wasn't an argument over science versus faith. There was nobody in that debate that said that science should trump scripture. What they argued about was how to interpret scripture. And the Copernicus and Galileo who were both men of faith in the Catholic Church, actually working for the Catholic Church, said we're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to harm religion, we're trying to improve our understanding of scripture. 
well, that's actually their goal was to understand astronomy, but they said this is improving and fine-tuning our understanding of scripture, right? So maybe this is a helpful metaphor. I don't know if it's helpful or not. When we look at this beautiful painting, right, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, that's depicting the creation of man, is it the message that's inspired or is it the, the painting in this case, or if we're comparing this metaphor to scripture, are it, is it the precise words that are in scripture that are inspired or it's the message that's embedded in those words? And the view of accommodation and how it wrestles with the idea of inerrancy, sorry, that's formatted a little bit weird, but it says that the message is, in, is, is, the, is what's inspired. Right, so let's say we have, for example, um, Paul, who was inspired by the message that might go something like, Jesus is God and be, should be worshipped by everyone, everywhere. Right, that's the inspired message that God gets from the Spirit. And so Paul wants to convey that idea in words that will be meaningful to his audience. So he pens this passage. In Philippians 2.10, it says, at, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, we can read that and kind of just say, okay, heaven, earth, under the earth, and try and accommodate that into our understandings of the world. But many people actually say, when we look at that, we think it is reflected of an idea that was quite common back then, that we lived in a three-tiered universe, that there was the earth, and there was what was above the earth, and those are the heavens, and there was what was below the earth, literally below the earth, and an, an underworld, right? And so when we read those verses that Paul says, you should worship Jesus everywhere, whether you're above the earth, whether you're on the earth, or whether you're below the earth, reflects an ancient view of the celestial geography of the universe. And so an accommodationist view says that these incidentals, the words that are used to convey the message that's inspired by the Spirit, are, are not the part that is inspired, right? That the, the, the Spirit didn't deliver the words to the authors of Scripture, the Spirit delivered the message, and they conveyed that message in words that would be understood by the audience to who it was written. And that's why we say so often that we need to understand Scripture in the historical context in which it was written. That might be a little bit, um, uh, I, I know that that message is sometimes a little bit uncomfortable for people that have been raised with a certain view of the inerrancy of scripture, which means that it's comprehensively inerrant. Whereas I would argue that the theology in scripture is inerrant, but some of these incidentals around the, whether the sun stood still or whether the earth stopped spinning or whether the structure of the universe is a three-tiered universe, or it's our, you know, not modern understanding of solar systems and universes and galaxies, etc. That's not what scripture is trying to convince us of. And this is a long list of, of the pillars of our faith that hold to this view, right? They're saying that we don't need to tie inerrancy to a comprehensive, perfect understanding of scripture. So then we can revisit the relationship between science and faith and say that they are not trying to answer the same questions. Scripture is not trying to give us a framework for the 
precise physical structure and function of the universe, that we can allow science and faith to exist complementary. Okay, so we're, as we're running low on time here, I wanna talk quickly about three models for relationship between science and faith. And the model that we are living in or that our society is stuck in is one of conflict, that, that what is we encounter from one is in conflicting with the other. It's that same message we started with, that either God can explain things, we use God to explain things, or science can explain things. And this is kind of held by the two polar opposites of the spectrum, by sort of the, the atheist groups that believe that religion is evil and that trusting God is foolish. But it's also kind of adhered to by, I don't know how to best describe this without stepping on anybody, by strict biblical literalists, right? And there are people out there, right? There is a flat earth society that's rooted in biblical literalism. Uh, and these sorts, and there's a geocentric society which is rooted in biblical literalism. They say it has to be comprehensively literal. And so science is conflicting with that, so we have to choose one or the other. There's our false dichotomy, science or faith. I, as I think you probably figured out by now, don't find that to be a healthy approach. And I, I see it a completely unnecessary approach. Okay, maybe a more um, open view is one of what we call uh, independence. And this view was um, popularized by a uh, recently uh, deceased Harvard paleontologist named Stephen Jay Gould. He was agnostic himself, but he um, had many friends and colleagues at Harvard and other schools, and he said they have a strong conviction of faith and they are top-notch scientists. So this simple view that science and faith just don't fit together, it, it just can't be right because I just know, I have so many friends that hold high regard for both. So he says, maybe it's like they're in separate worlds. Like so many of us who are parents say, you know, if those kids are fighting, I just wanna put one of you in one room and I'm gonna put the other one in the other room. And if you aren't overlapping, then you can't fight. And so that's what he said. Let's just put religion in their room and religion's gonna talk about the spiritual and the afterlife and meaning and purpose. And we're gonna put science over in its room and science is gonna talk about, you know, what the world's made of and how it works. And if they don't overlap, no fighting, fantastic. He called this non-overlapping magisteria or noma for short. So again, that's a way to keep them from fighting. But if we hold that God is the creator and sustainer of the universe, if the, the, the Bible is full of all these metaphors that invite us to look at the natural world to better know God, I find this, again, not satisfactory. Better than the conflict model, but it doesn't work for me. I prefer the dialogue approach, which says that in every tree, there's a cross, right? And this, actually, we designed our logo to convey that idea that, we, that there's overlap between science and faith, that in every tree, there's a cross. And the dialogue model then says that, you know, it's not always gonna be easy, but, there, but we can have a conversation between the two. And I wanna share with you just a few quotes, and we'll end with these quotes for uh, people that I think are wise and give us a vision of what dialogue might look like. This is a quote from a New Testament uh, professor at Wheaton College named Douglas Moo. He wrote, finding solid ground in the shifting geography of, of different and sometimes conflicting interpretations will not be easy. Scripture must certainly have the last word, and it's important for the integrity of biblical theology that information from outside scripture not be allowed to dictate what the Bible can say. 
Nevertheless, current scientific theory, especially when a theory has, has stood the test of time and is widely, expect uh, is widely ex uh, accepted, sorry, I think there's a typo there, cannot merely be dismissed. Rather than facilely dismissing scientific findings as incompatible with scriptural teaching, our approach should be to return to the text and open a dialogue between science and scripture. Right? So he's saying we need to make a distinction between science dictating what's, what scripture means versus dialogue. I think that's a healthy view. Here's one from Pope John Paul II. He says, science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Here's a beautiful one from a, a, a philosopher that I, that I admire. He says that uh, the religion that is married to science today will be a widow tomorrow because science is always changing. But the religion that is divorced from science today will leave no offspring tomorrow because the theology that seeks to relate God to humanity that ignores science, which is our best understanding for our creation, will ultimately fail. One last quote. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there may be conflict between soft-minded religionists and tough-minded scientists, but not between science and religion. Their respective worlds are different and their methods are dissimilar. Science investigates, religion interprets. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. They are complementary. So it's with this framework that I think that science and Christian faith, when integrated, can give us the fullest understanding of God. I know we're running low on time, uh, but I would love to answer any questions that pop up. I also know that we want to make a few announcements about what's coming up in the adult Sunday school class next week. And I want to very quickly, before we break for questions, end with a quick prayer. Lord God, we seek your wisdom in this. Lord, help us not to go with our own understandings, but trust that through an examination of your word and reflection on your works and your creation, Lord, that we will find opportunities to deepen our trust and faith in you by integrating science and faith. Lord, I pray that you would convict all of us that we would settle for nothing less than that, Lord, and that trust, that uh, contemplation of all that you have made will put us in better touch with you. Lord, I pray uh, for each of us as we leave here today, keep us safe and healthy, Lord. Be with our country during this time of, of intense strife. And uh, uh, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Disciple Science Podcast. We produce this podcast and our animated videos to show how integrating science with Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit based in St. Paul, Minnesota. And you can find everything at our website at disciplescience.com. As always, I want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode, for composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon.